0: We've had an introduction to the message already. Uh, Glenn mentioned looking at God's Word, and it was also mentioned in our devotional this morning. So today I want us to think about God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 say, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I'd like to look at three things in our message today. The authenticity of the Bible, how we view or interpret the Old and New Testaments, and some practical study and devotional ideas. So starting with the authenticity of the Bible, and I'm not uh, using just a technical term here for authenticity, Uh, it's real, it's genuine, it's whatever, and there are different words we could use, but I'm kind of using authenticity as a general term here. I want to start with some of the ideas, um, some of the external evidences, and some of those come from archaeology, and I want for us to think about some of those. I'll be reading a little bit about that, archaeology and history, and uh, then we also want to look at what the scripture has to say about itself. One of the criticisms of the Bible in the past has been that uh, Moses supposedly wrote the first five books of the Bible. And there was a time when critics said, well, people didn't know how to write then. But today, because of archaeology, we know that the Egyptians and others um, did have writing. Probably at least a thousand years before Moses. And I want to read a few things about some of the things we can learn from some of that writing that has been preserved. If I can find the right page here. I'm sure some of you have heard about Nusi before. Uh, It's one place where there's been a lot of archaeological studies. And they found there over 20,000... Tablets written in Babylonian cuneiform. And as they studied these, they realized that many of these confirm the customs that we read about in in Genesis. And, you know, I, I could talk about that, but I think I'll just, for sake of time and whatever, just read what I have here to give some examples. Does this prove the Bible is true? No, it doesn't prove the Bible is true. But it does give us a window into that, oh, yeah, the Bible's not so strange after all. These were actual customs back in those days. One of them is exchange of property. And... In these tablets they found written that when there was exchange of property, the transactions were recorded, witnessed, sealed, and proclaimed at the city gate. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 30, where Abraham was buying some property so that he could have a graveyard, The Bible tells us clearly it was done and witnessed in the city gate. A common custom. Marriage contracts. Marriage contracts included a statement that a handmaid could be presented to the new bride, as was the case with Leah and Rachel, and contained a provision obliging a childless wife to provide her husband with a handmaid who would bear children, as Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham, and Rachel gave Bela to Jacob. So these were not things that Abraham and Jacob just came up with. These were customs of their day. Here's another one, adoption. Adoption was practiced at Nusi when a childless couple would adopt a son who would care for them while they lived, bury them when they died, and be heir to their estate. It was specified that if they ever had a son of their own, then the adopted son took second place. This seems to explain Abraham's adoption of Eliezer as his heir before the birth of Isaac and the subsequent change when the Lord promised that a son of his own would be born to become his heir. Okay. and We can read this in Genesis 15, where God came to Abraham and promised him a son, and God said, oh, really? I mean, in essence, he said, I've already adopted Eliezer, and he's going to be the heir to my estate. But then we know that they did have a son, and Isaac did receive the birthright and the inheritance. Also in relation to the birthright, in Nusi there was found a contract where one brother gave his brother three sheep in exchange for his inheritance share. All of which sounds like Jacob's gift to Esau. Also in Nusi, the blessing of a dying father in bequeathing property to a son was honored in court, where there was a witness to corroborate the words of the father. And again, we think of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Esau. And here's another one that I found really interesting. I don't know if you have read carefully and remember the story about Rachel's theft of her father's household gods. Laban's household gods. And one of the things that very much upset Laban when he went after Jacob, after Jacob left, was that He took Laban's household gods. And Rachel put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them to hide them. Now, why was that a big deal? In Nusi there was a law that implied that property and leadership of the family could pass to a daughter's husband, providing the father had handed over his household gods to his son-in-law. So those household gods represented the leadership of the family. Thus it was when Laban overtook Jacob and anxiously searched his camp for the household idols, he could not find them. For Rachel had taken the images and put them in the camel's furniture and sat upon them. So it's interesting to learn that there are documented, you know, other places, not just in scripture where we read these customs. And it helps us to understand the scriptures Another one is the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them are about a thousand years older than any previously known manuscripts. And at least a part of every Old Testament book, except Esther, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, I want to read a... Just a paragraph here. The scroll of Isaiah, known as St. Mark's Isaiah Scroll, which was written on 17 sheets of parchment, sewn together end to end, making a scroll 24 feet long and 10 and 2 tenths inches high. It is the largest and best preserved of all the scrolls and was written in an early form of square letter, which, according to Dr. Albright, places it in the 2nd century B.C. This makes it the oldest known complete Hebrew manuscript of any biblical Bible, any biblical book, and it agrees in almost every respect with our traditional Hebrew text as used in the translation to the King James Version of our Bible. So it seems like this manuscript would have been within 500 years of the original writing of Isaiah. And I want to talk about that just a little bit, about uh, textual evidence for a New Testament. There are two things to consider in relation to the authenticity is it real or fake of ancient manuscripts, and how long and they are how long after the original was the manuscript written, and how many copies are available that say the same or nearly the same thing? Okay, as an example, uh, Pliny was a Roman historian. He lived uh, in the first century after Christ. And most historians today accept his writings as fact. We know of seven manuscripts of his writing. And the earliest of the manuscripts that are available today of his writings were written about 750 years after Pliny. Now, think about that and think about how what we have for the Bible compares to that. So when it comes to New Testament writings, there are thousands of manuscripts. Okay? One writer says 24,000. I can't substantiate that. And the earliest of those manuscripts go back to within a hundred years of when the original ones were written. So, you know, we accept Pliny's writing as factual but we have much less evidence for that than what we have for the New Testament. Why shouldn't we accept the New Testament? Now, obviously not all of those manuscripts contain all of the New Testament, but putting them all together makes remarkable evidence for the correctness of the New Testament. Think about the writers of the New Testament. They were competent people. Many of them wrote what they had actually seen. They were eyewitnesses. Paul was called of God and received his revelation directly from God. James and Jude were half brothers of Jesus. Mark and Luke... Mark apparently got his information from Peter, wrote Peter's stories. And Luke says that he investigated. And I think it's in the introduction to either Luke or Acts where it says he had perfect knowledge of all these things. Because he talked to people about it. We can believe that the writers of the New Testament were honest. How can we know that? Why would you risk your life for a lie? Very few people would risk their life for a lie. So it's very likely that they were honest. And they harmonize with each other. Now, there are differences of emphasis, but there's not really a difference in doctrine. And picturing Jesus Christ. And then just want to mention two writers from the early church fathers. And then we'll go on to looking a little more at a traditional message, what the Bible has to say. Origen lived from 185 to 254 B.C. He was from Alexandria. His father was martyred as a Christian when Origen was 17. And Origen became a teacher, and some people think a bishop, at the age of 18, in the face of persecution. Many times he was miraculously saved from persecution, and he accepted the Gospels, Acts, the Pauline epistles, Hebrews, Revelation, First Peter, First John and Jude as inspired works of God as a part of the Bible. Athanasius, who became Bishop of Alexandria in 328, and I give these dates again to help us remember that you know, these things go back pretty far. Not quite to the apostles, but pretty close. And he wrote in defense of Orthodox Christianity. And in a letter he lists all the 27 books of the New Testament, That we use today. As the inspired word of God. How else can we know the Bible is. God's word. Authentic. Has it made any difference in your life? Do you. Experience the. Love, joy, peace, fruits of the spirit that Brother Glenn talked about. Yeah, I think most of us here have experienced the power for change, the power for good that the Bible has. And then we could also think about its preservation. It's been preserved for thousands of years. Brother Keith mentioned this morning in the book of Leviticus that frequently throughout the book it says God spoke through Moses or God gave his words to Moses. It's frequent. Turn with me to Jeremiah and we'll just look at one example. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter one, verse one, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So Jeremiah is saying, these are the words that God gave me. It's given in a specific place. A specific time. Verse 4 says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. Verse 13 says, And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying. And chapter 2, verse 1 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying. So, Internal evidence. What does the Bible say about itself? A lot of the Bible says specifically, this is the word of God. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.16 says... An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction we believe that second peter was one of the last books of the bible to be written and it seems like when peter uses this term as they do also the other scriptures like he's looking at paul's writings and some of those other writings of the new testament as scripture I'd like to read from Luke 24 to notice Jesus' recognition of the Old Testament. Luke 24, verse 27. Here is where Jesus was uh, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says, And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus took these Old Testament scriptures. And we believe they're very similar or the same Old Testament scriptures we have in our Bible today. And he explained them. Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures it says. Another reason for believing in the authenticity of the Bible is um, prophecies. We read quite a few prophecies in the Bible, and some are yet to be fulfilled, but many of them have been fulfilled in detail. Um, I'll just mention one that we were actually studying in the second grade Bible this past week. Um, and that's Cyrus. If you want to turn to it, it's found in Isaiah 44, verse 28. And Isaiah wrote this approximately 150 years before Cyrus ever existed. Okay? And here's what it says. That saith of Cyrus... Okay, and it's talking about God talking of Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple, Thy foundation shall be laid. Now, when Isaiah spoke that, the temple was still standing. Jerusalem was a big city, or a city at least. I don't know how big. Okay, it was not destroyed. But Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would say that Jerusalem should be built and the foundation of the temple put in. And it happened. I want to read a few quotes about the inspiration of the Bible. The first one is from J. Otis Yoder. The Bible is the self-disclosure of God, the eternal, all-holy creator, given to us in words by men, controlled by the self-revealing God, so that the revelation was protected from error in the process of revelation, and is the message for all men in every age, culture, and country." And one from C.R. Smith. Inspiration is God's work in superintending so that by using their own individual personalities, the writers composed and recorded without error what God wanted recorded. Here are some thoughts about what we believe about inspiration. Inspiration is inexplicable. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and we don't fully understand it. It's restricted. It's limited to the Bible. The revelation is complete. No other book is inspired in this same way. It is essentially guidance. The Holy Spirit supervised the selection of material and the words. It extends to the words, not just thoughts and concepts. It is plenary, which means it's full and complete and entire, absolute. And it is verbal, which means it applies to every word. Inspiration only applies to the original writings, not to translations and versions. And we believe the Holy Spirit preserved the authors from all error and omission. So, we got through the first part of the message. We only have two more parts to go. So, fasten your seatbelts. We believe that both the Old and the New Testament are authentic and inspired. And even though the Bible consists of 66 different sections or books, which were written over approximately 1,500 years by around 40 different authors from many walks of life, shepherds, leaders, kings in different places. Some of it was written in the desert south of Israel. Some of it was written in Babylon. Some of it was written in Rome. Yet it has one doctrinal viewpoint, it has one world view, it has one moral standard, and one plan of salvation. And as you read throughout the Bible, yes, I think we need a little different focus on the Old Testament than the New Testament, but God's plan of salvation is there. It's throughout. It seems like God has related to humanity in three different ways, three different eras, from creation to the exodus, from exodus to Christ, and from Christ to the present. Not planning to say much about the first part, but in the second part, God's people were an earthly nation and needed civil laws and government. I believe God's purpose in every era was to bring people, to bring humanity back to him. In Israel, zero, we see that in God's promise to Abraham, where he says that he will bless all nations through him. I'd like to read from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 5 to 8. This is Moses speaking. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, I believe God's purpose in Israel was to draw other nations to himself. I believe there are some things in this era that God allowed, even though they weren't according to his plan. Uh, Acts 17.30, Paul and Mars Hill said that there were some things that God winked at, but he calls all men to repentance now. And it seems obvious from Scripture that in our era today, there are some things that are different from Old Testament times. Jesus before Pilate told him clearly that my kingdom is not of this world. The teaching of the New Testament, we read some of that in devotions this morning. In Matthew 19, Jesus says that marriage, you know, the way that it was interpreted and used in the Old Testament, he says was not the original plan. He calls us back to the original plan. And what about all the wars in the Old Testament? In 5th and 6th grade Bible, we're studying about the conquest of Canaan and, and all these wars and the judges and all their wars. I really don't think that was God's plan. I think that came as a result of the people's disobedience. And I have a number of scriptures here to bring that out. But maybe I'll just read one. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Actually, I think I'll turn to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Verses 26. Seven to 30. Here it says, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee, and I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. I really don't think all those wars were God's plan. I think he had another plan. But because of their disobedience we read the history that we have today so last part of the message some practical ideas about personal devotions and Bible study and I would love to hear from you during testimony time what works for you I'm going to expose myself and say a few things that have worked and not worked for me I think as we I think we need to read the New Testament and the Old Testament with maybe a little different approach okay the New Testament is where we find the details of the plan of salvation how to be free from guilt and power of sin and how God wants us to live today. So why bother with the Old Testament? Here we learn about creation and God's dealings with people. There's a lot to learn about the attributes of God. His justice, mercy, power, long-suffering, goodness. Even his immutability. And I think what Keith read in devotions is a good example. You know. I think this principle of confessing when we're wrong is universal. It's throughout God's word. Okay? And that was highlighted in the Old Testament this morning. I think one thing, one theme we need to keep in mind is important as we read the Old Testament is how God time and again, time and again, tried to bring mankind back to himself. And by saying he tried, I'm not implying that God failed. It was the people that failed. Yeah. First Corinthians 10 tells us pretty specifically that these things from the Old Testament were written for our admonition. So, what about personal devotions? I think it's important to choose a time and a place when you're most alert. If you're like me, it may not be in the morning. You know, we often hear about, you know, first thing in the morning, and that's good. But some of us aren't very alert first thing in the morning. You know, some of you are. So think about when do I have my devotions? Where is a good place to be undisturbed? But then if you're a mom, maybe you can't find such a place, but maybe you can find a time and place that you're at at least likely to be distracted. Read daily. You know, in the Old Testament, the king was to have a copy of the law with him, And he was to read in it every day. Paul tells Timothy to give attention to reading. It's a good idea to read through the Bible in a year. But maybe I'll just uh, make a confession here. I've tried that many times. And most times I failed. And I get frustrated. And finally I decided, you know what? I don't have to read the Bible in a year. I just, you know, read. And I find that most times it gets done in less than a year. But, you know, when I set too many specific goals for myself and don't meet them, then I kind of get frustrated. You know, So balance goals with what works for You might want to use a chart to record what you have read might want to make a timeline. It's really interesting to start in Genesis and make a timeline. You might want to list the promises and conditions of the promises that you find in Scripture. Now, if you start out to, I'm going to do this for the whole Bible, if you're like me, you won't get it finished. So maybe do it book by book. You know, and say, well, I'll take the book of, uh, Ephesians, okay, whatever, you know, start with something that 's not too big, so you don 't frustrate yourself. If you do these things and don 't meet your goal, don 't get frustrated. just keep working at it. You might want to use a devotional guide. But I would caution that you don't spend more time reading someone's ideas and interpretation than what you spend actually reading the Bible. I think it's good for couples to take times to read the Bible and pray together. If you have the possibility, read the Bible in different languages. Some of you can read Pennsylvania Dutch. The New Testament has been pe- translated into Pennsylvania Dutch. Actually, it's more Ohio Dutch. But, and it comes with a guide to pronunciation. It's not hard to learn. I think you could all learn. And you might want to read the New Testament in Pennsylvania Dutch for your devotions for a change. Or you might want to use different versions. Sometimes use a chronological Bible. May want to use a Kindle. I use a backlighted Kindle because I read in bed. And so then Orphan can still sleep. The Bible and reading the Bible is not a good luck charm. I have found frequently that. You know, when I have unintentionally or intentionally skipped my personal devotions, my day didn't go so well. And so for a while, I read the Bible just like a good luck charm, so my day goes well. It's not a good motive, nor is it a sleeping pill. And I've done that too. You know, read the Bible because it makes you sleepy. I have a hard time going to sleep in the evenings. So I'd love to hear from you. What works for you? Let's kneel for prayer.